I missed you guys. No, I'll tell the truth, you didn't miss me much. <laughs> it's kind of like, like when I go away for a couple of days and I can come back and say, say to my wife, honey, did you miss me? She goes, well, <laughs> you know, after you've been married all these years, you know, she looks forward to me getting away because she can get things done. <laughs> so, yeah, everybody okay? Yes, sir. Oh, that's good. That's good. Say a couple of things. Got a little prayer request for you. Um, Karen and I are leaving early tomorrow morning with a team, another couple from our church uh, and another church to go down to Trinidad. We have ministry partners down there with the Boudrams, and they're putting together, they've put together this uh, marriage conference uh, for pastors and their wives and ministers' wives. So uh, really, really pray. Uh, it's, a real, it's a real need everywhere, but uh, particularly there. So we're, we're excited about it, but pray that God will uh, use that in a special way, and just that we'll be a source of encouragement. Um, obviously, there we take for granted, we think it's the Caribbean so close to us, and it is, but they don't always have the same kind of exposure and resources and this kind of thing, so pray that God will uh, use us to put uh, wind in the sails of these men and women of God who, who are serving. Yeah, so that's, that's great. And there's another thing I want to announce to you um, there's a men's retreat uh, right here up the road at St. James United Methodist Church. Um, it's really exciting. A good friend of mine is actually, uh, his name is Charles Buffington. Some of you may know him, I think, some years ago. Yeah, you know Charles? Yeah. He spoke at one of our men's retreats, um, has put this together, and Jack Alexander is one of the key speakers of this deal. And uh, they're doing it, uh, you know, um, uh, to make a statement about diversity and this kind of thing as well, although uh, that's not the, the centerpiece there is to, to invest in the men's lives will be there. So um, this is sort of like last, almost last minute, it's November 10th through 12th. Uh, if you've got time and there are tickets that he left here for it, um, you know, if you want to check it out or so, just, just come up and uh, get, get this, all right? Well, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for your goodness, and thank you, God, for your grace in our lives. And uh, Lord, I just thank you for the time to connect here and just uh, hearing the buzz and the interaction and the sharing and fellowship. Lord, help us, we pray, to keep pressing in the community. Uh, you know the weirdness uh, that's in us as men, um, the very thing that we need sometimes we we shrink back from, but I pray, God, that you'll help us uh, to uh, put wind in each other's sails and to love each other well and to be sources of encouragement to one another um, as we walk with you and live out the Christian life. So, Father, I pray that our hearts and minds will be filled with uh, your perspective as we talk about the Word of God today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we've probably said, I don't know, if, uh, um, I say this a great deal, whenever we get into these, these slices of theology, um, we essentially have an hour to cover what, <laughs> if you were in a seminary or a Christian college, would probably take you uh, a semester or, the, or at least half of a semester to go through. So... We try to give the distilled essence and to whet, and to whet our appetites. Um, today we're going to talk about the Bible, the Bible, and um, and I want to I want to raise a question: uh, Why is the Bible unique, and what makes it unique? That's not that's meant for somebody to answer that. Why is the Bible unique, and what makes it unique? What's that? Okay, that's true. <laughs> what? Continuity? Okay. Yeah, that's true. That's great. What else? Uh, our marketing dude over there, that's true. Okay. <laughs> what makes it unique? Only book God ever wrote. That's true. 
cover to cover, it never contradicts itself. Yes, particularly in the original manuscripts. Uh, what else it makes it unique? Yeah. There you go. We've just covered everything I have to say, so let's go home early. Yeah, yeah. Why is it so difficult for us to stay engaged with it? Truth hurts. Lack of understanding of what it says. Can't control it. Yeah. Yeah, but why is it why is it so difficult for us to engage with it on a consistent basis? We don't believe it's our life. That's right. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think the spiritual warfare in battle. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. I've said this here before, and I've said this at church several times. I think fundamentally, uh, you know, all of that's true. I, I mean, we're sinners, okay? There's resistance in us, the truth. And you never get over that resistance. You got to press through it. And then there's the devil. The devil, the devil does not like truth and he does not like prayer. He doesn't like to see you depending on God and he doesn't like to see you getting into the book, okay? So there's a real enemy there. Uh, that's true. But I think fundamentally, and, I, and I, like I said, I, you know, this is a broken record here. You've got to make this decision that the Bible is the context of your life and not the point of reference for your life. Too many Christians, even in this church, in this church, view the Bible as a point of reference that they scurry back to when they, you know, the backside gets in a sling or something happens or, you know, there's a little, this kind of thing, and then they go grab a little promise from the Scriptures. Now, I'm not saying that's, I mean, it's better than nothing, but, but, but a lot of Christians have not made the decision that the Bible is the context of their lives. And that's huge. You might think that's minor, but that is a big deal. You've got to make the decision that not only intellectually is this the Word of God and all the facts... And we're going to get into some of that in high, high level here. And all of, all of the apologetics around it, uh, you can know that intellectually and it still not be the context of your life. You've got to choose that it's not just uh, an intellectual worldview. It is my experiential, if I might say, worldview. It is who I am. And the text of Scripture is who I am. You got to make that decision. You got to make that decision. If you don't, then you'll always be struggling with, you know, your devotional life and this kind of thing. There's always, there's always be this bifurcation or this, this conflict here. And I actually, you know, it sounds silly, but I actually, or sounds simple, but I actually think that a lot of us as Christians haven't made that fundamental decision. That this is, and that, that, and that drives the realization that I can't live without it. I can't live without it. You just can't live without it. You know, a friend of mine, his name is Gary Rossberg. He is a uh, Christian psychologist, and, and uh, <laughs> Gary famously, he was telling this a number of years ago, he says, you know, Crawford, uh, I tell people this all the time when they come to see me for counseling. Uh, they come into my, my office, and in my office I've got all these books around here, and and uh, he says, and I say this at the very beginning, I'm saying, now you see all these books here? Yeah, yeah. And you see on my wall here, I've got all these degrees and this kind of things and some, some awards and what have you. This kind of thing, yeah, yeah. He said, now, then he goes and then he grabs one book off the shelf and he holds it up to them. He said, but this is the most important book here. Now, you got a choice. 
you can either uh, keep visiting me and pay your 150, 200 bucks an hour and make me a very wealthy man. He says that to them. You can do that. Or you can submit to the truth of this book and we can get out of here probably a little bit faster. <laughs> you know, I, I just love it. I, I, but but what, he's, what is he saying there? He's saying, look, you, you got to decide that you're going to live, live in this truth. All right. Now, having said all of that, um, let me get some help to pass this out here. Please. There you go. So this is, this is bibliolo Bibliology 101. One of the things I'm not going to get into is, uh, you know, you get into the whole issue of the canon of the scriptures. I, I'm not going to get into that today, although not that it isn't, it's very important or um, a number of things. But we want, you just want to talk about some basic framework of the scriptures. The word Bible comes from the Greek word biblion which means book or role, biblion, B-I-B-L-I-O-N. It means book or role, book or role. The other word that's associated with the Bible is scripture. Scripture comes from the Greek word graphe, G-R-A-P-H-E, which means writing, writing. So, Bible means book, Scripture means writing. And so, when someone says, turn with me to the Scriptures, turn with me to the sacred writings. Open your Bible, open your book, God's book. Now, let's talk a little bit about the divine origin of, of the Bible. And, um, by the way, a little, little excursion here. Um, some would say, um, when you talk about the authority of the Bible and you refer to the Bible to justify its authority, isn't that a circular argument? Yes. Yes. But in the words of John Piper, and I think, uh, uh, um, oh, I just forgot his book. What's the name of the book? Great, I read it last year. This shouldn't be happening. Maybe next year this should happen. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, uh, Desiring God? no. Well, the, the, Rob, the uh, he wrote. Um, oh, a peculiar glory. Peculiar, yeah, you need to get that book because I have. He has put in words what I have felt, but wasn't able to articulate. Uh, in 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 the book, what what. The point that Piper makes is that, yes, from a logical perspective, if you are giving an argument about something, you probably should not use a circular argument. But with the scriptures, he says, uh, yes, it, 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 the reason why you refer to the Bible as the validation of its own authority is because, get this, the scriptures, they're self-authenticating, meaning meaning that the Spirit of God points to the trustworthiness and the truthfulness of the book. And so this is right, this is right, this is right. So when you appeal to it and then you experience it, it is self-authenticating. You follow what I'm trying to say? He says it much better in the book. Get the book. Okay? It, 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 is, it is a great read. So don't, don't, don't scurry back when someone says, well, that's a circular argument. Well, you, you acknowledge it. Yes, it is. But apply its principles and truth and see if it's not transformative. So the authority of the Scriptures is found within the Scriptures because the Holy Spirit is at work in saying this is right, this is true, this is right, this is true. It's self-authenticating. 
Now, having said that, the divine origin of the Bible, did you realize that over 3,800 times the Bible declares God said, or thus says the Lord? And you put in parentheses there, authority. The Bible is not a book of suggestions. Ah, and I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. To say that in our culture today, when you talk about authority and, you know, exclusivity, that ain't right. You know, you got to be validated, man. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the locust of authority. It is my truth, and if it aligns with me. So we don't like talking about didactic stuff or trans, you know, transcendent truth and authority, but the Bible the Bible is authoritative. Thus says the Lord. It's not a book of suggestions. The Bible is a composite line upon line book of propositions. Okay? It is not truth to be negotiated. Paul recognized that the things he was writing were God's commands. He recognized that. He understood that. That was not being arrogant. He, he knew that the hand of God was on him. And these words that he was writing, these letters that he was writing, they were God's commands. Um, the testimony of reliable men affirmed the integrity of the scriptures. And you can, you know, again, this, is, this falls in the category of it being self-authenticating. Yes, there is this wholeness there. Um, in fact, that's what we're getting into next, the continuity of the Bible. Uh, this is remarkable. You know, I, uh, this is hard for people to refute. When you read the scriptures and you see how old the scriptures are and this amazing continuity in the word of God. Uh, it was written by a diversity of authors from diverse backgrounds. Just, just look at the authors. Do a little biographical study of who wrote what books, and it will amaze you. I mean, this, there's no certain pedigree. There's no certain common ground of education. There's no certain common ground of experiences. I mean, these people are from all over the map. And you look at this book, and you look at who wrote it, you say, yeah, this shouldn't be. This, this consistency should not be here. It is just absolutely extraordinary. Um, you know, you've got, you got a shepherd, you've got a king, you've got a political leader, you've got a herdsman, you've got a tax collector, a medical doctor, a rabbi, fisherman. <laughs> and, and this book, read it from Genesis to Revelation. You go, look at God. I mean, it's just, just remarkable. You, you can't get three people in this country to agree on anything. It's remarkable. It was written in different locations and under a variety of circumstances. It was written on three continents. Europe, Asia, and Africa. Again, that ought to take your breath away. There's no collusion. I mean, they, they weren't sending emails back and forth. You know, they weren't exchanging PDF files. Hey, tweak this for me, man. <laughs> God was speaking to these folks. Wow. The writers did not know of the other writers. And the Bible was written over a period of, you know, some would say 1,500 to 1,600 years. So, so, so just think about this. 
you got 40 different authors from diverse, incredibly different backgrounds, writing on three different continents. They did not, most of them did not even know each other over a period of 1,600 years. Come on, man. I mean, it's remarkable. And yet the Bible, this bullet point, is a marvelous unified whole. And even, even some of the apparent inconsistencies in our English versions, when you take this into account, this, it's less than, it's, it's a fraction of like 1%. And there are explanations for that. So it's just, it's just, just, a, just a really, really a remarkable thing. And again, the conclusion to this tale is that no human being could have done this. It was an impossibility. No human being could have done this. And so when people say, oh, I don't believe the Bible, I don't believe it's the Word of God, this kind of thing, and... First of all, you know, one of the things that, you know, you can have all kinds of arguments, and I think that that's good, but, you know, one of the things I say, well, have you sat down and read it? Have you read it? Have you just sat down and read the Bible? You know, I would challenge unbelievers, say, look, I just, you need to go on a pilgrimage. Before, before you continue your argument about how could it be the Word of God, why don't you sit down and read it from Genesis to Revelation? Just read it. You may even not have to go to Genesis. Just read the New Testament. Just read it. And you see it in its beauty and, and, uh, and, its, and, and its fullness. Now let's get into a couple of things here. Um, by the way, before you look at your notes, what do we mean by Revelation. We say that this book is God's revelation. What do we mean by that? Insight. Close, but not exactly. What else? Yes, that's a good one. Something that was previously hidden come to light. Uh, anything else? God revealing his mind to us. Yeah. Okay. God's wisdom? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. Uh, let's look at the, the, your, your outline here. So revelation comes from the Greek word, and I'll spell it out for you. A-P-O-K-A-L-U-P-S-I-S. Apocalypsis. Okay, which means disclosure or unveiling. I'm going to come back to this in a moment. Revelation should not be confused with illumination. I'll get to that in a second, but revelation should not be confused with illumination. I think sometimes we get very sloppy in our terms, and it adds a little bit of confusion here. Uh, I'll come back to that in a second. But revelation means disclosure or unveiling. Uh, revelation suggests that someone knows something that you don't know. And in the revealing of what you don't know, that's revelation. Uh, it is the disclosure. And it's true, it is God's wisdom, it's that which was hidden. Uh, it is his mind that he makes known to us, okay? Um, revelation mean that, means that God discloses truth about himself that man would not otherwise know. Truth about himself that we would not otherwise know. 
That is Revelation. Now, there are, there are two broad categories of Revelation. Okay, and that we just, we, we need to go here. The two broad categories of Revelation, there, there's general Revelation, and then there's special Revelation. There's general Revelation, and then there's special Revelation. I'm going to make a statement here. Um, um, there's been a lot of talk about dreams, and God does give dreams. A lot of talk about Muslims who, have come, who are coming to Christ uh, based upon dreams that they're having, which is substantiated, by the way. I mean, it's just really amazing what, what God is doing. But I, I would suggest, and those, those who are working in the Middle East and where, where they're seeing, or even among, even among refugees, where they're seeing just hundreds, if not thousands, of these Muslims turning to Christ. Um, when you investigate the dreams, a friend of mine uh, just spent his sabbatical over in Greece where there are just thousands of refugees uh, uh, pouring into Greece. And he's doing his dissertation on, on dreams and dream conversions. He shared this with me, as well as I'm on the board of Campus Crusader Crew and uh, just a, a number of our staff that's working in the Middle East with uh, the Jesus film, and they're hearing these same stories. Almost without exception, the rest of the story is this. They'll get a dream. They'll, they'll get a dream of, of seeing, seeing someone dying on the cross. Uh, it's vivid, and it piques their curiosity. It scares them to death. But the conversion does not take place. Here, here's the deal. The conversion does not take place via the dream. Almost without exception, the authentic conversions, God leads them to someone who explains the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and that by the word of God. I share this with you because there are a lot of Christians who want to have uh, an experience-based you know, relationship with God, these extra uh, biblical experiences. Well, really, the revelation is found here. God might use a dream to get your attention. He might use a dramatic thing in your life to get your attention. But there won't be real substantive change and conversion apart from this, the Word of God. Again, faith comes by hearing, and that by the word of God. I share that with you because there's just a whole lot of unbridled stuff. And this is how churches get in a ditch. You know, the, the beginning of error sometimes is not, not that you choose to believe that which is wrong, but you choose to elevate your experience and make it parallel to what the truth of the word of God is. And there's a caution there. You, you just got to be careful. I didn't say God doesn't give us experiences. He does. But all of that has to be poured, pulled through the truth of God's word. And so uh, it's a little bunny trail there. But, but it, it, there are these two categories. There's general revelation, and then there's special revelation. The point of general revelation is always to get us to special revelation. Don't forget that. That's the point of general revelation. General revelation is always to get us to special revelation. Now, here's general, the, there are three types of general revelation. The first is nature. Nature. God reveals himself in nature. Uh, that's what Psalm 19, 1 through 6 is all about. It. Romans 1, 18 through 21. People go to hell not because they didn't know. They know. And the point of God revealing himself in nature is to strike curiosity in the hearts and minds of people. The wonder of the human body, the wonder, I mean, just the, just the beauty of the mountains and, the, and, 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 and you're looking at the roaring river and uh, the stars and the expanse of it. 
uh, it should trigger in your heart and mind that God is declaring a message, I exist, I exist, I exist, I exist. This didn't just happen. And it should strike wonder in our hearts and in our minds. The second type of general revelation is providence. What is providence? Surely, some of us, somebody knows. What is providence? Providence is not a high school down the road. (laughs) What an English major. You went to government schools too, huh? (laughs) What is providence? Come on, y'all. God's plan and his will worked out. And it's not that you figure, not that you know that, but there's this sense that, hey, man, this wasn't just happenstance. Look at how this worked in my life. Why didn't that, why wasn't I killed in that <laughs> car accident? It is a, it's a, the providential. Uh, some would even say, you know, it's the common grace of God. Providence. And all of that is to get our attention, to point us towards special revelation. Nature, point us towards special revelation. God's personal providential care in your life. We all have, we all have stories. You look at your life even before you became a Christian, and you could see God orchestrating things. Providence, that's, that's part of general revelation. Third is conscience is a part of general revelation. Why do unbelievers feel bad about what they've done? You know? Why is it this little tug and tick in their heads and hearts and said, that wasn't right? (laughs) That wasn't right. That wasn't right. God placed it there. And all of that, whether it's nature, providence, and conscience, is to, is to, is to pull, us toward, pull us toward and point us toward special revelation. That God exists. To point us in that direction. I actually think that this is an incredible witnessing tool. An incredible witnessing tool as we share the gospel with people. You know, just raise the question. You think... This, all of this is by chance? I believe in evolution. Okay. How do you explain those events in your life where you should have, been di- you should have died? Or why are you still here? And, um, have you ever thought that, man, gosh, there's got to be something greater than me? How come you feel bad when you lie? I think this is, these are great witnessing tools. God is behind the scenes, moving the scenes in all of our lives. And you just can't get away from them. You can deny them. You can run. You can try to explain it away. But you just can't. Where shall I go from your presence? You, you can't get away from them. And that's the whole purpose, I really believe, of general revelation. But as I said, general revelation is to drive us to special revelation. I would just give a little kind of like probably inadequate definition, but special revelation is divine disclosure from God to us or to mankind. Divine disclosure. When God says, this is what this is all about. Special revelation. Now, there's two types of special revelation and only two types of special revelation. You say, Crawford, that sounds so very exclusive and narrow. Yes, it is. Only two types of special revelation. Some would argue there's only, well, there's only two types. One is Christ. 
One is Christ. Christ. Um, John 1, 1 through 5. John chapter 5, verses 36 through 37. John 6, 36. John 14, 10. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. Uh, God in these last times has spoken. And the word lagos, the expression of God, became flesh. It is God's word visibly. Jesus is his special revelation. And so when Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. He was saying that exclusively there's no other revelation of God in human flesh than me. None. None. And you say, that sounds strong. It's none. There's nobody, none. So he is God's revelation. Jesus. And we could go on. The whole of, the whole of the scriptures, by the way, Jesus is the theme. He's the focal point. From Genesis to Revelation, the spotlight is put on the provision of God for man's sin. By the way, he's the one that, 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 that he is the continuity of the message of the scripture. Central piece. And the second part of a uh, uh, second type of special revelation, obviously, is the scripture themselves Christ and, and the scriptures. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter, chapter 3. I thought I had to do this around the table, but let's just do this together here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse, verse 16. It says that uh, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now notice the expression, all Scripture is breathed out by God. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does inspired mean? Okay. When you use a, de use a word in a definition, sometimes it doesn't help us. So what does inspired mean? What's that? Initiated. Trustworthy. Yeah. God breathed. When, when, when uh, there, there are two places in scriptures where we see the breath of God. God breathed into man, and he became a living soul. Right? What is the, the relationship between breath and life? Okay. When God breathed in us, it wasn't that we became little gods, However, part of his nature is in us, and I would suggest, and theologians suggest, that it has to do with the, with the image of God. God is the author of life. So when he says all Scripture is inspired or, 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 or God-breathed, breathed out by God, means that all Scripture carries with it what? The life of God. These are not just words on a page. Just as you are living, God breathed in us. So this is living. Did you hear what I just said? This is living. It's living. 
This is, is, is not like reading a Gresham novel. It's not even like reading a, a great piece of history. This is living. So when you talk about the inspiration of the scriptures, you got to be careful. You're not talking about some dead orthodoxy here, uh, but you're talking about life. The very choice of words here, you're talking about life. That whenever you read this book, the supernatural life of God is here. You, you can, I think far too many of our discussions on, on the veracity of the Scripture uh, stays up here. Where it, 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 it's more than that. It has, to do with the, it has to do with our spiritual lives. That it's not just fodder for arguments or just clarity of intellectual connection. This is all scriptures breathed out by God. Now look over in 2 Peter chapter, chapter 1. Uh, actually, picking up uh, in verse 20, verses 20 and 21 says... Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But get this. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here you have it, and we're going to get into this in a section. Here, here you have it, the very word, words of God, that God breathed, it's the life of God. The men who wrote the scriptures were born along by the Spirit of God. God directed them, and so what they wrote was a very life and words of God. Now, having said that, let's dive into a little bit of inspiration here. Uh, what inspiration means. So it, it, these terms are very important. I, I, I hope you can understand it. The, it. Revelation and inspiration are different, okay? Revelation deals with the disclosure of truth. Okay. Inspiration, um, these bullet points here gives a definition. Inspiration is necessary to preserve the revelation of God. You might say it is how the revelation of God was given. Inspiration is the Holy Spirit's, this is very important, superintending over the writers so that what they wrote is the very word of God. Again, it's 2 Peter 1.21. They were born along by the Spirit of God. These were not just, you know, somebody sitting out in the field and saying, you know, let me write this poem and I'll call it God's word. I mean, God, God, God spoke to them. God spoke to them. Inspiration is the Holy Spirit's superintending over the writers so that what they wrote is the very word of God. Now, I've already mentioned this. The two anchor passages are 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.21. But let's look at these five important aspects of inspiration. Uh, and I, I'm repeating myself here. God the Holy Spirit superintended the writers. 
The Holy Spirit is always the agent of divine disclosure. The Holy Spirit's role is to guide us and to lead us into all truth. So the Holy Spirit superintended the writers. Secondly, the authors wrote according to their styles and personalities. Now, I need to... Um, there's a distinction I want to make that's hard to make here because, uh, but uh, technically, for the most part, the Bible, and, and bear with me now to really put your thinking cap on here, the Bible was not dictated. For the, I say for the most part because there are some notable exceptions. For example, the seven letters uh, in Revelation, Jesus dictated those letters to John. He said, write this to them. Okay. But for the most part, for the most part, it, it, the way we think of dictation, you know, you have an assistant or a secretary, somebody, and nobody does dictation now, but in the old days when you did dictation, you know, they were passive. Their personality had nothing to do with it. He said, hey, take this letter. And they wrote it. That's not exactly how it is in the Bible. God used the personalities of these authors. He used their, he, he used their personalities and their backgrounds. But the very words that they wrote were inspired by him. For example, I mean, there are all kinds of... You, you look at... You look at uh, Gosh, where, where did God, I mean, the, the four Gospels. You can see the personalities of the authors in those four Gospels. Luke's attention to detail. As you read the Gospel of Luke. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, John's compassionate heart, and you read his Gospel, but also his bottom line nature. You read the letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Um, uh, Paul is very sequential, scholarly, and logical. So when you read his letters and his arguments, you get that. Uh, James is full of bottom line passion. And, uh, and, 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 and he and John are very similar in the sense that they both, their, their, their books are very difficult to outline that their epistles, because they tend to write in a circular kind of way. They'll mention a topic over here and come back to it later on. So, but God used all of that. And yet the beauty of it all, as we said earlier, is a continuity of Scripture, and yet you see these personalities. You, you just read the Psalms. See, David's passion, very in touch with his emotion. So be careful. Yes, yes, it is the very word of God. Yes, it came directly from God. But technically it's not dictated in the sense that they were passive. But God used their personalities and God used their backgrounds. An interesting aside here that, you know, which, um, you know, which is God uses who we are too. Uh, you don't have to be something different for God to use you. Yeah. Thirdly, the divine human authorship is a recording of God's truth without error. The divine human Divine human authorship is a recording of God's truth without error. Now, I need to bullet point this one. Uh, inspiration extends to the words used by the writers, not just the ideas. This is big. The very words. Now, um, I started to do this, but I left it out. You might want to put in parentheses or someplace down there this, this expression, verbal plenary 
inspiration. Let me explain that in a second. Verbal plenary inspiration. The word plenary, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y, verbal plenary inspiration. This is what we believe. This is what we believe at the church here. This is what our doctrinal statement is all about. This is the reason why I preach expositionally, okay? The reason why we emphasize that. We say verbal plenary, verbal, meaning meaning the words themselves are inspired by God. The words, the words matter. We're not talking about just the ideas, but the words. And we say plenary, plenary is, means all, means whole, everything. All of it, Genesis to Revelations, the very words themselves are inspired by God. All right? Um, that does not mean, yeah. Yes, but the, those different words even were inspired by God. What the words mean. That, that's exactly right. That's, that's fair, Ken, because uh, uh, now words have changed their meaning over time. I don't want to get too much into weeds. Words have changed their meaning. For example, the old King James Version, uh, what's that passage in Thessalonians that says, Speaking of the Holy Spirit's restraining power, the old King James would say, he who letteth will continue to let. Well, that word used to mean the opposite of what we think right now. When we say let, we mean allow. No, it meant to the opposite. It meant to restrain. So words change their meaning over time. And so I think certainly it, it, you, have to, you have to understand the author's intent in its broader context, I'm not saying that, but we are saying that the words themselves that were chosen mean something. Like in, in Ephesians 5, when it says, uh, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, culturally, we may not like that these days. We may not like the term submit these days, and we might want to try to explain that away. But when you read that word and you read it in its broader context, you can't explain that away. It meant what the author meant was what he said. So when we say verbal, we mean the very words, uh, albeit um, uh, considering the context. Yeah. How do we guard against, like, uh, I think of a word like tongue in the mm -hmm. Bible? Yeah. Yeah. You you just said it. I think you have to read it in context. You have to the this is where good hermeneutics, uh, the science of the interpretation of scripture. You don't you you try to. All of us have a bias. Okay, it's, we do. I do too. And so, but you have to fight against that. And context is king. Uh, you try to find what the author's intent is, is about. Uh, and this is where, and I, you know, you, you don't have to, the English Bible is fine. You don't need to know Greek and, and Hebrew to understand that if you give honor to context. However, this is where a good understanding of a little knowledge of original language is, is extremely helpful. Uh, because some, some translations, for example, you got to know the difference between a paraphrase and a translation. And uh, I think we do some Christians, younger Christians, a disservice when we don't help them to understand. I think paraphrases are wonderful. They're great. I've got them myself, and sometimes I'll, I'll pick up the message or something. If, I'm, it, it, if it says something, it's just really very, very helpful. But you've got to know the difference between the two. Uh, a paraphrase is a paraphrase. They're trying to give a dynamic, <laughs> relevant equivalent, okay? 
That's the purpose of a paraphrase. Um, sometimes paraphrase is a little wrong, too. You got to be careful. Uh, I shouldn't go there with this. I have a little difficulty with the NIV in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, because I think some, some of how they translate, and I like the NIV, generally speaking. I think it's a great translation. But, there, you know, I, there, there's some passages that they get a little on the paraphrase side that actually, in my view, if you know some of the original languages, it will change the meaning. So all that to say, you've got you've to um, understand the author's intent, read it in context, take the verses before, take the verses after that, and then uh, let, the scriptures, let the scriptures interpret themselves. And by the way, I say that to people who are teaching or preaching, uh, don't go to commentaries first. Don't do that first. Uh, the very first thing to do is when you're studying the Word of God, uh, you rest, wrestle with the context. Let, let the, you know, then, then you might you get, a, get a bump and roll. Okay, let's go back to the commentaries and see what that's all about. But let the Bible interpret the Bible itself. Yeah, so we got to hustle here. Um, okay, the verbal plenary. Uh, where was I? Yeah. Number five. Oh, well, number four, inspiration extends to the words used by the writers. And number five, inspiration relates to the original manuscripts. That's too restrictive. It it does not mean that what we have here is not inspired. This is inspired, but it's based on the original manuscripts, okay? And... uh, Technically, we don't have any other original manuscripts, but we've got consistent copies. And it's in those copies where we see the consistencies that can point to the reliability of what we have here. Let me say a word about inerrancy. I guess I've already tripped into this. Inerrancy means that there are no errors and the Bible tells the truth. That's basically what inerrancy means. There are no errors, and the Bible tells the truth. It's trustworthy. Inerrancy is a logical conclusion. I sort of borrowed this from the late Charles Ryrie. Um, It sounds simple, but it really is true. It says that God is true, Romans 3, 4. The scriptures are inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3, 16. Therefore, the syllogism says the scriptures are true. God is true, the scriptures are inspired by God, therefore the scriptures are true. And that's, there's a lot more to inerrancy, but that's basically the fundamental pillars. Let me just say a word here about illumination. So you got these words, you got revelation, inspiration, and illumination. And you got to know the difference between these three words. Now, illumination is the ministry of the Holy Spirit whereby he enlightens us to understand, 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 understand. That's key. Understand the written word of God. That's illumination. He enlightens our minds. He opens our minds so that we can understand the word of God. That's not revelation. Oh, God revealed this truth to me as I was reading the Bible. No, he didn't. The truth was already there. He illumined our minds. He caused us to understand. See, you say, well, Crawford, you're being so persnickety. Well, you know, this matters because, you know, people are, I hear people all the time talking about this revelation. I've got a revelation from God. The canon of Scripture is complete. There are no more revelations from God. None. There are no more revelations from God. If you've got additional revelation, then that means that this is not complete. Now, 
you know, uh, my friend Wayne, Wayne Gruden would take me to task on this because he does believe, and I think he does have a point here, that um, in terms of now the, okay, well, in terms of the existential leading of the Spirit of God on a day-by-day basis, God can, quote, reveal to us through the leading of the Holy Spirit, like what I might want to do or should do next, or, or I've prayed about this situation and I feel led to do this. And, and in that sense, I might be say that God revealed this to me. I think that that's okay. And in that sense, if you want to use the term revelation, I think it's all right. But I think you need to be very careful that the moment you start making a standard of objectivity for other believers to follow, then you kind of like, you know, the horse has left the, left the pasture there, man. I mean, that, that, that ain't happening. And so I, I say that, and I know it sounds exclusive, and I know it sounds narrow, but this book is complete. There are no more revelations. And, uh, and while I'm on it, you be, you be kind of careful of some of these TV preachers and strong personalities who are, you know, into this word of faith thing um, and who are spouting these revelations. Sometimes it's a means to control people or to shut down, uh, you know, anybody that might want to say something or hold them accountable. You always come back and play this trump card, well, God revealed this to me. God told me this to tell you that. And the assumption is that then, therefore, this is the 67th book of the Bible, you have to do it. So this is a pretty big deal. Uh, Revelation is complete. What God is doing right now is illuminating our minds, causing us to understand the truth that has been revealed and how it's uh, to be applied to our lives. So again, I just want to wrap this up by giving three, three important distinctions. First is revelation. Revelation has to do with disclosing or unveiling. The second word is inspiration. That has to do with the method of transmitting the content. And obviously, we just said it, illumination, the Spirit enlightening us to understand the content. Okay. So I think we have time for maybe one or two questions. Yes, sir. Yeah, just speak up a little bit. People that are saying, I've got a word for you. I had a dream that this is for you. Or I, I dreamt you're going to meet this person. Or I dreamt this is the person for you. My daughter's getting a lot of that from well-meaning friends. Very concerned about it. Delicate. You have to be very careful about that. Yeah. Well, you know, I have people say that to me all the time. You, you, believe it or not, you know, that uh, they've got an insight for me, or the Lord uh, impressed upon me to tell you this. Here's what I recommend to people, and here's how I respond. Um, one is, I don't feel any obligation whatsoever to do what they said to me. And your daughter needs to feel that. I have zero, I, at this stage, I have zero, I, I listen, and uh, I might pray about it especially if it resonates in my heart. But then uh, wait and see. I'm going to say something here that, that uh, I said this in a message I gave here at the church, when, you know, how to listen to God's voice, that, that um, I don't think any follower of Christ can know with 100% certainty that God has spoken to them. Apart from this book. So, now that is not to say, I mean, I've had, I've had the Spirit of God lead. I mean, I, even when I'm preaching and stuff, I've had a sense that I'm supposed to say this, that I hadn't prepared. 
or I've had, I've had, I've felt led, and I've done this, where I've said things to people. I, I, there's something in my heart that I felt like I needed to say to them. But even when you do that, you do that with a spirit of humility. And so my posture is, is that, okay, I'll pray about that and I'll wait and see. Because God doesn't have a speech impediment. Just wait and see. Yeah, I, I've said a couple times, though, however, if you are wrong, uh, remember in the Old Testament, <laughs> you ought to be glad we ain't living there. Else, you know, you might need to stop by the funeral home and make some arrangements, Doc. So, so, I mean, I don't mean to be, but I think there's some maturity there that needs to be, you know, yeah. And if it's of the Lord, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come about, but she needs to feel zero pressure. Zero pressure, yeah. So uh, when Paul was on his way back to Rome and all those people mm-hmm. prophesied mm-hmm. that you were going to be in chains and the mm-hmm. price of his belt, is that an example that was specific to Paul and specific at that time, or is that somewhat of you know, something that's being carried forward as prophecy or as you know, words of prophecy? <sighs> Yeah, you know, I don't know how I feel about that. You'd asked me that question 20 years ago. I would have probably given you a strong dispensational line and said that that, that that probably was unique because he was an apostle. I don't know if I'd say that today. Uh, I, I would just say what I said here. Just wait and see. You know, wait and see. The larger point is, I mean, if it's of the Lord. Uh, we're the priesthood of the believers. And so just because somebody tells you something doesn't mean that you have to do it. There's only one Lord, that's him. So somebody might speak authoritatively to you. If it's not written in this book, you don't, you don't have to bow your knee to that. You take and you pray over it. And evidently, that's what Paul did. You know, there's this ongoing debate as to whether or not he was outside of the will of God by continuing his journey. I don't buy that. I think he was. And I think that he knew that suffering was going to be part of his legacy in life, and he pressed into it. So, yeah. Okay. I see my man Scott here. <laughs> okay.